Let's open up our Bibles back to uh, Matthew chapter 2. It's on page 787 of the Pew Bibles, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. Well, I just wanted to start this morning uh, by asking the question, what's your response to Christmas? I mean, as the season, as, as we come into Christmas, and we're obviously getting very close now, and everything really starts to amp up, what's your response, kind of your gut response to Christmas? Do you get, do you get excited and energized? You just love the thought of, of parties and presents and, and decorations and family? Or maybe you get uh, kind of depressed and uh, exhausted at the thought of parties and presents and family and all that stuff coming. It just makes you kind of fatigued to think of Christmas. Maybe your response to Christmas is uh, to get nostalgic and sentimental. You tend to think of Christmas past when the kids were younger and when you were younger. Perhaps uh, Christmas kind of makes you angry. You know, all the, maybe it's all the commercialization that goes on at Christmas, or maybe it's if you're not religious or you're not a Christian, it's, it's all the Christian stuff, all the Jesus stuff, all the Savior stuff. It just kind of makes you angry. There was a little, a uh, few years ago, there was a billboard battle outside of Philadelphia on, on uh, 495. The, uh, the Catholic League put up a billboard featuring the nativity scene with the words, you know it's real, this season celebrate Jesus. And a couple miles down the road, uh, the uh, American Atheists put up a billboard that said, you know it's a myth, this reason, celebrate reason. A little bit of a battle, a little bit angry. Maybe you get uh, just kind of sad and anxious. The holidays bring back hard memories, painful memories and feelings. Whatever the case, however you kind of respond this time of year, I want you, us to consider this morning the original responses to Christmas. How people in Jesus' day actually responded to his birth. It's an interesting question because when Jesus was born, there was no Christmas, right? There wasn't a, a Christian church at the time having celebrations. There wasn't people counting down the days until his birth. So what was their response at the time? Was there a response? Well, Matthew, in this account of the first Christmas that, that he's written for us, records two main responses. So I want us to go through them now and, and, and uh, kind of look at them as we, as we go. Look at verse 1 of our text. It says, Now as Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jesus, saying, Where is he who is to Jerusalem, excuse me, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And we, we need to kind of perk up and pay attention right here because Matthew actually does something very unusual here. He sort of skips over the whole uh, birth moment of Jesus in his gospel. 
He skips over the whole nativity scene as we know it. You can't just immediately go, okay, Carrie's going to tell the Jesus story now and then go into the nativity scene that is etched in your brain because that's not where Matthew goes here. He doesn't mention the annunciation to, uh, of the angels or the celebration of the shepherds or the reflection of Mary on her newborn or even a description of Jesus in the manger. You get none of that from him. Instead, we m- immediately hear about these wise men from the east. Matthew wants his readers to know of first importance when we think of Christmas. What he wants us to think about as as Jesus was born is that these strangers from a foreign land came to see him. And it's not just that they came to see him, but they were led to him. A star in the sky led them to Jesus. And it wasn't uh, some, uh, you know, just some natural phenomenon like a comet that happened to be going through the sky and they went in that general direction. No, we see in verse 9 that the star actually moved before them in the sky and came to rest over where Jesus was. It was a supernatural event, a miraculous leading. God was leading these foreigners, these wise men, to Jesus. Now, to get the scene right in our minds, we need to straighten out a few little details that we probably have wrong from all the Christmas cards we've seen and things like that. D.A. Carson, in one of his his commentaries, does a good job pointing out some of the things that we probably have wrong. First of all, he says... uh, They weren't kings. It wasn't three kings, even though we may sing about three kings that came. The the Greek word is magi. They were what they would call magicians. We see such uh, such men back in the book of, uh, of Daniel, pictured as astrologers, enchanters, scholars. They were wizards, the wizards of Babylon, which is probably where they are from. They could be from Uh, Persia or Arabia, but most likely they've come from Babylon. And keep in mind that these men are not men that uh, the scriptures or the Jews looked on favorably. They are powerful men of the world who practice magic, sorcery, which was not really an accepted practice with the Jews. One uh, rabbi shortly after Jesus' birth wrote this, he who learns from magus, which is magic, is worthy of death. These were powerful, elite men of the world, secular men, respected for their astrology abilities and their wisdom. But they were not men thought of well by the Jews. Second, we need to realize that there was probably a lot more of them than three. We, we think there's three. People tend to assume there's three because they came with three gifts. Uh, but it's very unlikely that they would have traveled such a distance from Babylon as three men. They always traveled in large groups, 30 at least, sometimes hundreds, for safety purposes. So... They could be 30, they could be 300 strong, traveling with guards and other companions. Third, 
They weren't necessarily on camels. They probably had, were on donkeys, maybe even some elephants in a large caravan. And finally, when they arrived, they didn't arrive at the actual nativity scene, the birth event. They came much later than that. In verse 9 through 11, we are told that they arrived at the home of Jesus, not a stable. You see, even if they left the day Jesus was born, and they traveled that 800 miles from Babylon, they're 40 days out, easy. But they probably arrived much later than that. Herod, later in verse 16, when he's making his evil plans, his infant extermination plans, asked these wise men exactly when the star appeared, and then he calculates back two years to figure out who he needs to destroy. In other words, when these wise men arrived, they probably didn't see baby Jesus, but rather toddler Jesus. Matthew immediately jumps us as readers from the actual nativity scene, or over the actual nativity scene, to this event that happens much later, where this entourage of foreign, powerful men arrive with gifts at the home of toddler Jesus. Why does he take us there? Well, here is the point. You see, these wise men, they know that Jesus is king of the Jews. That's who they've come to see when you read the text. That's who they ask about. They probably heard about them from the Jewish community living in Babylon. They knew their prophecies. They, they have no connection, no ethnic connection to him. Technically, Jesus is king of the Jews. He's not their king, the king of Babylon in any way. Yet they say, in, it says in verse 2, that they come to what? To worship him. In fact, look what it says in verse 11. Actually, start in 10. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And that's the star sitting over his house. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. And that's when they give him all their gifts. Picture that scene. 30 to 40, maybe hundreds of powerful men from Babylon with all their worldly array having dismounted from their, their donkeys and their camels encircled before the doorway of this modest little home of Mary and Joseph, bowing before their toddler and offering their treasures in worship. You see, they are demonstrating for the whole world, Matthew wants us to see that they're demonstrating for all of us that this Jewish little boy is actually everybody's king. He's the world's king. He's arrived. And of course, their conclu conclusion is confirmed by the scriptures and prophecy. Matthew, right after that in the text, quotes Micah 5. A prophecy written 700 years earlier. Look at it in verse 6. This is what he says. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This moment is, is a big fulfillment moment of prophecy. 
We saw last week that, you know, Matthew is pointing us all the way back to Abraham, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the one who's promised to Abraham who will come and, and save his people, the seed of Abraham. And then that was focused through David's line, that he'd be of the royal line of David. And it's interesting, when Solomon, David's son, was born, many thought, oh, he is the one. He's the Messiah. And if you read about it, the nation's kings came in and they bought, brought him gold and frankincense and spices. But we find that he wasn't the one. And the prophets then in Scripture begin to point forward and say, no, there's a greater one to come. Isaiah 60 says this about him. Isaiah 60, I believe, verse, let's see here, verses 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Many prophecies from the Old Testament are being fulfilled in this moment as these representatives of the world fall down and lay their tribute before the child Jesus. It's a picture of what the, the true response for every person, for all of us, should be. It's a picture of the only appropriate response to Jesus, the true king. It's interesting, Matthew ends his gospel with these words in Matthew 28, 18. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority on earth, on, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am the king, Jesus said. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Matthew begins his gospel by showing how God leads these, these national figures to come and bow down before his king, and he ends his gospel showing how God sends his people out to bring everybody from all nations to God's king that they should bow. God's king has come, and we should all worship him. Now, if you're a little unsure about this, why should you worship Jesus? Why should you give him your, your allegiance, your treasures? Let me give you a few reasons that, that Matthew kind of teases out through his gospel as he presents Jesus to us. The first thing is that Matthew shows us he is a good king. He didn't come to subdue us, to make us serve him came to serve, to love us, to save us. We just went through the book of 2 Samuel as a church, and we saw this, this uh, prefiguring of Jesus in David. And David was compared to Saul, Saul who was a harsh king, who brought everything in to serve him and took the people as his servants and took their wealth and his taxes. And David as, as the gentle king who came to bring justice and peace and serve his people with his life. He prefigures Jesus. Everything in Jesus' character demonstrated that. When he walked this earth, what does Matthew show us that he did? 
Did he raise up an army to destroy his enemies, to take his power? No, that's not what Jesus does. He, he reached out to the oppressed and the downtrodden. Think of all the stories in the Gospels. Think of him with the woman in, at the well, this adulterous woman five times over, according to the Jews, that you're not supposed to go near. He moves towards her. He loves her. He offers her living water. He offers her life. Remember how he called the helpless children to him. How he hung with the ostracized and the sinful and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the adulterers and, and, and loved them and offered them salvation. He touched and healed the sick. Even people who nobody would go near like lepers. He would touch them. He would go near them to heal them. The woman with the issue of blood contaminated he moved towards her. He healed her. He fed the hungry by the thousands. He even brought the dead to life. He called people to forgive and love their enemies. And then he went to the cross to do just that for us. To forgive us. To bring us salvation. This title used here of him, King of the Jews. Do you know the next time it's used in this book? It's used when he's up on the cross, hanging on the cross in our place, praying for our forgiveness. There has never been a king like him, and there never will be. He's God's good king. And he's now reigning in heaven, offering life to those who will, who will come to worship him. Which brings me the second, to, the, to the second reason that we should worship him. Not only is he a good king, but we need to worship him. We need to worship him. We live in a world where people don't recognize that there is one divine king. People don't think there is one authority over all at all. We, we live in darkness. We think authority and truth are, are just relative. Thus, we, we are all our own kings. We're all our own authorities. We can just do as we please. Nobody can tell us what to do. We'll run our lives our way. Thank you very much. And how's that gone for us? Well, the results are in if you just look around. A world constantly at war. Governments a mess with corruption, children suffering, societies where the, the poor are underfed and the rich are overmedicated, families fractured, personal relationships unworkable, so that the holidays are actually very hard times to deal with each other. Well, it's great, isn't it? When we are kings, each one of us, Merry Christmas. The world is a mess, society is fractured. And we are personally broken. We need God's king. A king who, according to the quote from Micah 5, will shepherd his people. And bring them to peace with God and with each other. You see, Jesus, as God's universal king, is a shepherd who can really bring us peace and there's only one appropriate appropriate response if you want to be part of his kingdom 
to be part of his peace. And that's worship. God's universal king has come, and we're all called to worship him. And I'm not just talking about singing songs, although that's a wonderful thing. No, worship in the scripture is about submission. These men come, these wise men, what do they come? They come and fall down before him. They give their treasures to him. It's a posture that says, I'm all yours. Be my king. You reign over me. That's the response we should have at Christmas. But of course, in this story, there is another response to Jesus that's very different. That's really the exact opposite. There's another prominent character here. His name is Herod. He is a king in his own right, a regional king of, of Israel and Judah. And he, he's not known as a very nice man, if you know much about him. According to extra-biblical sources, he was a ruthless man. He was suspicious of everybody, that they were trying to take his, his power and his position. In his paranoia, where it's recorded that he had his mother killed. He had his mother-in-law killed because he was threatened by them. He then ordered the execution of his oldest son and eventually two more of his sons. One uh, uh, Roman emperor, Augustus, said of him that it was safer to be his sow than to be his sons. Safer to be one of his pigs. Now when Herod hears of Jesus' birth, he has a slightly different response, doesn't he? Look at verse 3 with me. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then they read him the prophecy. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And by worship, he means destroy and slaughter, he means murder. I saw a sign along the highway. Sometimes you see those signs, they have Bible verses on them. They're kind of gospel signs. And it was uh, Christmas time of year, and uh, this, this company had put up a, a verse. This was the verse they put up, dot, dot, dot. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. I thought they probably hadn't read the context. As we read on, we find out that the wise men are told in a dream that Herod wasn't quite sincere and that he didn't return and they didn't return to him to report the location of Jesus. And when they didn't, he ordered all the male babies in Bethlehem under two years of age to be murdered. And it was done. Herod hates Jesus and he wants him dead. That's his response. He sees the real-life consequences of Jesus' kingship. If Jesus is king, guess who's not king? If Jesus is king, 
His life must change. If Jesus is the authority, then he doesn't dictate truth even for himself. If Jesus is the universal king, it'll mean change and submission in his own life. And he wants nothing to do with it. He will do anything to avoid bowing the knee in worship to Jesus. And the thing is, as kind of freakish and paranoid as Herod is, he's really just a bigger-than-life, grotesque example of every single one of our hearts. I mean, in the end, this is why people reject Jesus. Why else would you reject him? It's about who will be king. It's about who will be in charge of your life. Why would you reject such a good king? For some terrible reason, we cling on to our autonomy even though we're doing such a bad job of being in charge. We just want to be in charge of ourselves. I've told this illustration before, but it's one of those ones you get from your kids that you just keep using. My son Micah, who's now 24, this is from when he was four. When he was four, I was uh, shaving in the bathroom. We had a little pedestal sink, and he came in, his head was about the height of the pedestal sink, I remember, and he, he's just staring at me, shaving away. And he finally looks up at me and he says, Dad, see what he says? How come you have the rules? I said, what? And he said, how come you have the rules? I said, you mean, how, how come I'm in, in charge? I'm the boss? And he goes, yeah. I said, because I, I am. I'm, I'm the dad. It's the way it is. I'm in charge. I got the rules. And he said, looked down, and he looked up. He said, but I want the rules. <laughs> stopped shaving for a minute. I said, you can't have them. <laughs> and he said, but I want them. I said again, well, you can't have them. And then he put his head down, and I'm shaving away, and suddenly he looks up from underneath his eyebrows, and he goes, give me the rules. <laughs> he realized you can't just ask for these. You got to take them. That's it, man. That, that's the nature. That's our heart. That's what sin is. Now, I, like, I, I know people like to say, no, wait a minute. My, my, my rejection of Jesus isn't about being in control or a hard heart or being angry. It's just an intellectual problem. You know, this Jesus stuff, this miracle stuff, you know, miraculous birth, resurrection. I just, I just can't believe it. It's just not true. I'm a, you know, I'm a scientific thinker here. That's what the American atheists were saying with their billboard, right? This is, the, this is the season for reason. Let's be reasonable. But I want to say again, look at Herod in this story. Is his problem intellectual? When the wise men show up with their story of following a, a star that's led them to, to, to find this Messiah child, he doesn't say, Wait a minute, guys. You traveled all this way following a special star in the sky? Come on. 
It's probably just some comet or something like that. I mean, please, you guys have been staring at this guy way too long, you know. He doesn't start interacting with them on, on, on the truth. This can't be right. He doesn't say you don't actually believe these prophecies from the Old Testament, these Jewish books. No. He knows it's real. He knows how early these prophecies were written. He has scribes to tell him that. He knows these wise men are credible people. And they didn't travel all this way bringing all their treasures because they're crazy. He responds the way he does, Herod, to Jesus because he, he knows this is true. You don't kill off hundreds of babies and toddlers causing mass hatred amongst your constituents because you know this Messiah thing is just a little story, not true. You don't do that because you know it's a lie. You do that because you know it's true. He wants to keep being king. He's threatened. That's the tendency of the human heart. That's why people reject Jesus. It's not a mind issue, it's a heart issue. It's not an evidence issue, it's a will issue. As bad as we are at it, we don't want to let go of running our lives our own way, of our own little kingship. God's universal king has come. That's what Christmas is about. And there's really only two responses to it. It creates this massive divide in our world. It's not a political divide. It's a spiritual divide. You either worship him like the wise men as your shepherd king, bowing your life to him, giving him all that you are, and thus receiving the blessings of his kingdom and life. Or you reject him like Herod as a threat because you want to hang on to your own autonomy even though you're failing at it every day. The question for all of us this Christmas is, is where do you stand? What's your response to Christmas? And you know, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the fact that a lot of people, when they hang on to their autonomy, it's because they're afraid. They're fearful. They, they may be failing at running their lives, but having control is all they've ever had. Their life may be a mess and heading for destruction, but all you got was, is this clinging on to it. You've got this literal death grip on your life. It reminded me of uh, those scenes when we have a hurricane come through. I don't know if you remember Hurricane Katrina when it came through. And there would be all those people on, on their roofs or in a tree needing rescue as the floodwaters rise. And we'd see the footage. And I remember some footage I saw once of a man who's in this little tree and the floodwaters are rising. He's hanging onto it and the, heli the rescue helicopter had come and it had dropped the, the, the rope down for him to grab onto. And he was clinging to that tree and as the rope would get near he would reach and then he'd grab back to the tree, and then he'd reach out again, and then he'd grab back to the tree. Because this, this is what he had. But this was literally his rescue, his life, and he needed to let go. He needed to let go of the control he thought he had as those waters rose and reach out 
take that rescue. That's what King Jesus came to do. That's what he did at the cross. He came to rescue us. He's offering us salvation, but you have to let go of your life and cling on to his life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son into this world, a light in the darkness. Thank you for sending the shepherd to come and shepherd our souls. Thank you for sending your king who's come to serve us with his salvation. Lord, we pray that you would help each and every one of us by your spirit to give our lives, to let go of the control we think we have that's leading to destruction and grab on to your son, our life. Amen. Thank you.